welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode 19, Understanding Enneagram Types, part two using typology for transformation. Welcome back, everybody, to the Journey for Integral Recovery podcast. And this is episode 19. Can you believe it? And uh, we're really, really happy to be here. And I'll just speak for myself. When I get to hang out with these two gentlemen and our guests, it's a high point of my week. I just love these guys. And, Same here. Uh, you know, we started out with friendship and then we developed into this thing. So uh, mm-hmm. thank the Lord. This friendship seems to be growing along yeah. with uh, the work that we're doing together. And that's yeah. just super rewarding. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> I'm John Dupuy, CEO of uh, iWake Technologies. Um, you know, wrote the book Integral Recovery: A Revolutionary Approach to Treatment of Alcoholism and Addiction. It was the first, and you know, I just somehow was at the first of the queue to write the book. But Guy Duplessis, who we've entered, written brilliant books. Bob, you've written papers. Uh, anyway, so this is. We're all in this together, and uh, anybody who wants to join with us is a pioneer, and anything we contribute because we're inventing this as we go, okay? Because yeah. the whole model is made to keep evolving, getting deeper, richer, better, more effective, more beautiful. So your input, your participation, your questions, your comments, your building groups or whatever, you know, whatever uh, your your higher power or spirit or your vocational call is, is, is leading you to do, you know, is part of this. And we'd love to support you in any way we can. Yes. So last week we started on, uh, well, We've been galloping along trying to get the whole uh, integral map uh, uh, delineated as it applies to a recovery and uh, beyond recovery, which is the really exciting thing about about integral recovery. It's not just about maintaining sobriety, which is a foundational part, but it's also about coming your best most brilliant and most beautiful version of yourself because that's the true authentic joy that you have. And that is the gift you have uh, to gift the world and your people and all creatures uh, past, present, and those to come. So um, we're going to, we started, uh, I'll just go over the map really quickly. We start with the four quadrants. Aqua map stands for all, stands for all quadrants, all lines, all levels, all stages, and all types. And we're just about to polish off the introductory part of types. And we got into some different typologies, but basically the one I talk about in my book and the one that we use most of all, simply because I knew it best probably when I was writing the book, is uh, Enneagram. But I think you'll see it's an it's extremely powerful tool for understanding yourself, understanding your, your, your pathologies, your foibles, and your potentials, and your great gifts you have to the world, and not only yourself, but everyone that you're involved in in the world. And it'll help you understand uh, our current president and all kind of things. It's really revelatory. Just as when we start looking at stage development, we understand why we have a cultural war. While people, the same country, same background, blah, 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 look at each other and they can't even talk about anything besides, it's a nice day today. Yes, it is. You know, that sort of stuff. Or they start just like going after each other. So, so anyway, learning the types is, is uh, it just changes everything. There's just a new depth in understanding what it means to be a human being and what it means to be you. So anyway, that's my opening statement. You guys want to follow up on that? 
John, I think you're fantastic at being able to organize and inspire all this. I, I just sit here and smile as I listen to you. Uh, thank you. I, I do have a thought. It's, it's something that you said earlier about becoming our best selves. This week in my meditations, I read different uh, uh, recovery-oriented kind of inspirations in the morning before I meditate. And one that I came across this week that I wanted to share in that spirit that really helped open up. In the 12-step programs, we talk about our, uh, our defects. Uh, um, uh, and uh, this author was talking about our defects in a way that, uh, you know, so much of my work is around shame and around reducing shame, because as I understand it, shame stands directly in the way of effective recovery. And this author had the wisdom to look at defects from a slightly different perspective, because people can assimilate that right into a shame-based personality structure, and it's really problematic. And what this author said is that shame, uh, excuse me, that defects end up being blockages in our access to our true self. Nice. And I love that spin. It's exactly what you were saying right now. You reminded me of it. And we can come to this later, but I really uh, internalized that. And I went to a, a, a group that I attend, Refuge Recovery, yesterday and shared this insight. And it landed well with those of us uh, in the group as well, is that what a way to reframe our, like you mentioned, our foibles or our, our so-called flaws as simply blockages in the stream of the self. And what can I do to remove those so that I can more access my potential? So thank you, John, for uh, reminding me yeah. of that. Yeah. And unrealized gifts that we have inside yes. of us. And yes. yeah. those those vocations, those things we have to get yeah. to the world with, our musicality, our writing, yes. our teaching, yes. our loving, yeah. our whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Those are also when we yeah. don't. Yeah. work with those and bring them into a form that we can share with others. Those, I believe those are equally blockages to the true self yes. and will yes. get in yes. the way of, of our, our recovery and, and yeah. our, our um, uh, becoming the best version of ourselves, our self actualization. Yeah. we said yes. in humanistic psychology yep. and realization that we talked yeah. about in transversal yes. psychology. Yes. 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 Doug, how about you? How are you this morning? <laughs> well, yeah, just uh, delighted to be here again with my friends. It's hard to believe we're 19 weeks into this thing already. And, and I just continue to be rewarded on my own journey of growth and recovery by not only the conversations with you guys, but the things that are happening in, in our Facebook group and mm -hmm. uh, some of the emails that we get yeah. coming through the website. Um, yeah. Just terribly grateful for everything that has come together to make this happen and yeah. delighted to be here with you guys again today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and let me, let me yeah. just, you know, one of the, when we're, we're integral, you know, recovery practitioners and one of the things we begin conversations is how's practice, right? Because, you know, this thing is a practice and I just want to share a little, uh, <clears throat> before we get into the Enneagram types, we yeah. continue yeah. with it. Uh, a little inspirational thing that happened, big inspiration for me. Uh, this week, you know, I've been traveling a lot. And when I travel, I almost every day I'm hitting a gym or I'm playing tennis with, with Pam, you know, so we're getting a lot of exercise as we travel, but I've had this like hang up with our local gym here. It's a little gym. It's got everything you need to, you know, if you work hard, you can, it, it's great. You know, it's not a goals gym. It's not a 24 hour fitness or one of these things, but, but I've had this blockage. And so I'll, I'll drive 120 miles round trip to get to a, a bigger gym, which is so lame anyway. So I was, I was meditating and kind of just scanning, you know, what's up. And the voice said, you know, get a workout partner. I went, Oh yeah, man. I'm, and I've been like working out for 35 years probably. And I've always done it alone. I don't think I've ever had a workout partner. The, the lone, silent, hero, heroic type. Anyway, or anyway, 
you can add what fill in the blank there. But so I went to the park where I walked my dog Lucy. There's right next to Teasdale. This you know has monkey, you know, kid stuff, and I use it to practice pull-ups and, and chin-ups while Lucy goes runs around and looks for mice. But anyway, so I found a baseball there, one of these T-ball soft kind of practice balls, and it had Daly on it. There's a good friend of mine, Derek Daly, whom we worked um, uh, with for years in in therapeutic wilderness industry, and he's a part owner now of Legacy here in the county. And I said, Derek, and he was a top amateur baseball player, and his father won the World Series at this really – top level amateur playing his brother did and 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 uh Derek said I had to win it just so they just get off my back you know now at Christmas dinner you know I'm cool <laughs> I won a world series too so anyway I said man he would be a great workout partner so I called him on my phone right there and said hey man I'm looking for a workout partner he said let's do it All he was right. just right there ready it would all, All right. already been set up so we're working out three times a week uh, together and we did it last week. It was so good. And just in our communication, great ideas and inspiration. And he's all sore, which is cool. And he's an athlete and he gets his body and some other projects have come out of that. So I'm just saying just, you know, sometimes you have to tweak, you know, if it's not working for you, you have to go, what, what do I need to change here? And if in your meditation, you know, I believe you check in, you begin to have that kind of wisdom voice access that'll yeah. let you know what your marching orders, you yeah. know, both strategically and tactically how to get things done. So that's, I'm really excited. My body's feeling good because, you know, when you work out with other people, sometimes just because mm-hmm. of the ego being what it is, you might push yourself a little harder. <laughs> so anyway, You're publicly committed now, John, that. that's, that's <laughs> double accountability. Hell, oh, hell yeah, gonna, man. I need so much it. accountability just everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. keep me on the path. So why don't we get into, I think we started, we, we left off with maybe five. Okay. So we're talking about the Enneagram. If you guys had to see the program, it's recorded, go back mm-hmm. and watch it. Yeah. And you know, this is introductory and we're going to get some of my good friends, Leslie Hershberger, mm-hmm. Google her. She's an expert, a colleague. We've worked together in this field uh, over the years and we'll have her on here at some point to really unpack this stuff. But just to give you this first taste. So it's a nine point Enneagram means a nine pointed geometrical symbol in Greek. So for those who speak Greek, you're in. So there's nine basic points. OK, and then point number one. And there's a lot of complexities. You have wings, you have different types within the points and you go to different points when you're either ascending, getting your stuff together or under stress. So there's a lot of complexity here, but we're just starting with the basic points. One is the perfectionist. Two is the helper. Three is the doer. Four is the romantic poet. And five is the thinker. Okay. And we'll start off with five. And um, Mm -hmm. Doug is a uh, self-identified five with a four. He's a romantically poetic a thinker, beautiful, you know, not it, all bad. Five ring. They call it the iconoclast, as it were. <laughs> oh, good to hear that. That's great. Oh, good, good. And and five is uh, well, Ken Wilber, you know, the guy that that kind of gave us the basic structure we're always talking about. It's a world class five, and he used to joke he was this big fat head with this little string called the body. And uh, anyway. <laughs> Then he started working out and he, yeah. you know, when I first saw him, he was in the body like a Greek God, beautiful, but he, he understood that. But the pathology of the five, uh, and we'll talk about the gifts too, is a dissociative thing. You know, you, you go into your mind, everything's analyzed, you live in the world of thought and you're kind of dead from the neck down. And, uh, you know, fives can, can often meditate and they get all dissociated and they think they're enlightened. No, you're just dissociated because <laughs> meditation is not excluding reality, but it's, it, it helps us deeply connect with all things, including our own selves and our own bodies and our own issues. So, so 
Yeah, Doug, tell us about it. What yeah. was it like being <laughs> a, a young five going through your journey and, and what's it like now? Well, I guess uh, I wanted to start by um, mentioning something that, that or, or commenting on something, John, that you mentioned earlier, which is that uh, our Enneagram types show us the work that we need to do and our particular issues that we're facing and thus our path towards transformation and recovery is very much influenced by all this. Um, being a five, I am, I am very introverted also and always have been. I'm comfortable in the world of my head and the tendency has always just been to think and, and desire to know and understand everything. It has always caused me to uh, just explore and investigate and observe. And when I get an idea in my mind, I have to go learn everything about it. So I discovered integral <laughs> theory and it was, all right, I need, I need more. I need to study deeper. I need to read books and, and just <clears throat> immerse myself in it completely, which when it comes to integral, of course, is not a bad thing. It's uh, an enlightening journey, but the, the challenge is you can get stuck there and disidentify with, with the other parts of you, with your heart and your body, as it were. Um, I would tend to get lost in my head when I was deep in my addiction, thinking about all these things and, and the, the pessimism, the depression would just overwhelm me. I couldn't see a way out of the challenge and I kept trying to think my way out of it when, as they say in 12-step in parlance, I had to learn to act my way to better thinking. And while discovering better ideas was certainly helpful in my own journey of recovery, it was only part of the picture. Um, the thing that made the biggest difference for me and continues to make the biggest difference for me was learning how to get into my body, my uh, fitness really opened a lot of doors and, and got me out of my head and into my body. Um, I'll tell a couple of uh, different stories here. One is uh, fitness is what started it all. I began by walking. Um, first of all, I was, I was very reclusive in the depths of my addiction, and I can get into this more when I tell my story in full in some future episode, but uh, I was essentially an agoraphobic. I didn't go out of the house at all. I didn't I didn't drink or use in public. It was in order not to make a fool of myself, I was alone. And, you know, staying that way, I got to the point where I was scared to even go out the door. So I started by just taking a walk around the block and I resolved to do it every day. And that was it. I just had to step outside the house and walk around the block once. And in doing so, I got outside and I saw my neighbors and started to learn that the world wasn't out to get me. It moving my body in that way, Doug, how old, were, how old were you, when, uh, more or less, when this was going on? Um, so I started using pretty young. Things got really bad when I was 21, 22, and continued into very early 30s. Um, so this is that period. I'm probably age 28 around here. Uh, yeah, so... so you know, the exposure to the sunshine and the moving of my body. It's amazing how good exercise makes you feel just getting out and moving around a little bit. The pleasurable neurochemicals that you get from substance use can really come through and exercise in a beneficial way that your body loves. And learning how to do that was incredible. You know, from there, it ballooned into starting to strength train and get into yoga and do some other things. And my practice these days is pretty robust, but um, I start my morning every day with a workout and 
when I miss that for whatever reason, man, do I feel it. It makes all the difference in the world to me. And coupled with meditation uh, is, is a very solid foundation for practice and my, my continued growth and recovery. But it was learning how to include that in myself and what I needed to do what I needed to do that was important. Yeah, um, I might add that, Doug, you're, you're also a husband and a father and working, and you know the, you have every good excuse in the world to be too busy to do all this stuff, and yet you found <clears> a way to, to do <throat> it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my, <laughs> my wife says she is just amazed by my willpower because I'm up at 5.30 or 6 a.m. every single day to get that workout in before the world intrudes, and uh, it becomes a great way to start the day. Something else here is is the heart, and this is connected with the body. I spent some time as an actor as well. This is another interesting part of my recovery. But uh, when I when I got into the acting world, I signed up for a class in the Strasberg Method and belonged to a beautiful so cool. actor studio there in Atlanta that was focused on Strasberg Method. And Strasberg acting, for those who are not familiar, is very centered on expression through the body and learning to feel things in the body. So you lead not from a place of thinking about the script and thinking about the lines, but rather identifying things in your body and then acting through them. And in the exercises, I was not only accountable to a group of people who were doing something I love and got me into a social circle and started to make me feel better about myself, raise my self-esteem and transcend some of that shame that I had felt for so long. But also I learned how to identify these things in my body and how to feel through them and release them. That combined with the exercise program was exactly what as a five I needed. Those things Mm -hmm. got me out of my head and made all the difference in the world. You know, I just say it's it's very moving to hear what you're saying, Doug, because, you know, I've I've known you, I don't know, we've known each other for six months or something, it hasn't been that long, but when I met you and the first time we we started communicating and Skyping, it's like, as an older guy, it's like, when I see a younger guy, and you know, with the quality of your heart, your soul, and your mind, it's like, yeah, you know, man, things, there's hope in the world, things are, things are, you know, uh, you know, are getting better, you know, because look what's coming up, you know, and, and to hear that you kind of the, the depth of, of your suffering and your isolation and the person that we know today. And of course you, you, <clears throat> you have that pain too. I can see that, you know, a teacher of mine once said, you have good pain and I can see it in your eyes that you're not just a ingenue. I mean, you, you, you've dealt with your demons and you struggled with the darkness and it gives you a, a presence and, and, a, and a wisdom and a, something that, Otherwise, we don't get. So anyway, it's 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 really it's quite moving to hear your story, and I hear it, and then I compare it to what I've known, and it's just remarkable. It's really grateful for you. Yeah, thank you, Doug. It's wonderful to hear your story. I look forward to hearing more, but this is very touching as well. I've joined John in that. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And <clears throat> thank you, guys. Uh, John dealt with my demons. Is <laughs> it's an ongoing practice. It always is. Um, Absolutely. I I feel very fortunate now to have a toolkit that helps me get through it. When things, when things come up, they're no longer uh, so, so all encompassing. Um, and I have the tools now to work with to continue to move through it. So it's, it's always an ongoing practice and we go and we correct and we keep working at it. And every day is a little bit better. And then some are a little bit worse and you do the practices and they start to get better again. You know, and one of the gifts that, that five healthy five has, they're sages. 
you know, it's like they have this, you know, like Ken, and it's just stuff, you know, it's just amazing. And he chose not to be a leader, you know, not to be a guru, not to be, he's just, uh, he's a sage and we go to him and we take his stuff and you have that same quality, you know, it's like every time we talk, well, I read this book and you put this stuff together and it's like, thank God, you know, we've got this guy that, that is, uh, you know, so smart and, uh, you know, being smart's not bad. Being smart is a really good thing. And the human brain, the intellect is a great, amazing miracle of the universe. It's just when it becomes associated in isolation without the other essential parts that it gets unbalanced like everything else. So, so there's a real, there's a beauty. Uh, and in fact, I wanted to plug this book here. My favorite books I've given away so many times. It's the wisdom of the Enneagram by Hudson and Rizzo. And I think Rizzo just died a couple of years ago, but it's a fantastic book. And one of the nice things it has in it among many things, it has a scale is what is it like to be a unhealthy five? You know, what is it average to really high functioning? And so you can read that and go, Oh yeah, that's me about six o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And and then this is me when I'm really, you know, in the zone and doing really well and giving my gifts and, you know, just in that place. And this is the work that I have to do. So, uh, you know, all of these things have their, like it's like you said, Doug, it shows you what needs to be done and it shows you, you know, the potential. And we were talking about, you know, uh, one of the things, and maybe I'm just, you know, going off another tangent, but why not, is that uh, often I've noticed with spiritual teachers that when they're talking about the higher stages of development or enlightenment, all they're really talking about is the really positive aspects of their particular Enneagram point. So, uh a seven spiritual teacher would talk about, you know, you're never bored. You can laugh a lot. It's fun. You're lighter, this and that and the other. And like, well, that's true. And the six would talk about, which we'll get to next for me. You talk about faith and, you know, overcoming fear and, you know, and, and knowing everything is essentially okay, no matter what. And so, so, you know, we tend to project our stuff. And if we're, we're working with people as coaches or therapists or something or groups, uh, we tend to, well, this worked for me and everybody will be the same way. Well, we're, it's not that cookie cutter, you know, different people are different, working on different issues. And some people don't, it's like, you really need to read, Doug. Uh, no, I think he's really got the reading thing. You know, he's not even reading, writing books. So, you know, so you can't project all that. But when you look at all, all of the virtues that come out of all the points, then you have something that I think we can all aspire to. And I think at the higher levels of development, we begin to take on those positive aspects of all the points. So that's a really interesting story that we were discussing uh, the other day. Uh, John, let me dive in. I want to respond sure. to that just real briefly here is that my initial exposure to typologies was in the mid eighties when I finally delved into a Jungian typology. And we may discuss this a bit more at some point, but whether it's the Enneagram or Jung's um, personality types or any other kind of um, cartography, I know that for me, one of the most powerful experiences I had with this, it was really one of these eye-opening epiphanies for me was it it opened the doors for me to be empathic or compassionate for people that are different than I am. And also, and I think this is actually more significant to me at that point, it allowed me to be compassionate for myself because owing to this and that reason, I find myself in a graduate school. I found myself in a religion. I found myself in a marriage. I had been born into a family in which my particular type from a union perspective was really uh, marginalized and even shamed. And I had internalized that. And so to read a, a system, and I think the Enneagram does this par excellence, which allows me to have empathy and compassion for myself as a beginning, and then to extend that to others is really extraordinary. I'll tell you a, a practical application of this is that 
I think this reading, this delving in for me uh, in the mid-80s was significant in leading to my leaving my marriage at that point. And uh, it, it opened my eyes to what had happened, what was going on, and it seemed fairly intractable even after years of therapy. But I, I, I have this to say is that I left my marriage and it's continued to be this way all these years. The mother of my daughter, uh, I've, I've always maintained compassion for her. We didn't have an acrimonious separation and divorce. And I think it was really a function of understanding typology. So there's some real cash value to internalizing what we're talking about. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, um, Perhaps we should move on to the next point. I had this compulsion mm-hmm. to get get it's through you. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah me. No, but to get to you. No, no, to get to try to get to nine before we finish this particular yeah. thing, and we can yeah. we can do it. You know, we don't have to rush this thing. But the next point is a six, which I am. And six is about fear. That's the main thing. That's the major issue that the. Uh, um, it's it's not one of the deadly sins, by the way. All, I think all the other ones are represented. They have their deadly sin thing, but just being afraid is not necessarily a sin in the uh, in the classic mm-hmm. Christian uh, labeling of our different weaknesses. But it is about fear, and there's two types basic two t- basic types, and there's other you know more delineated types of, of sixes. But is the counterphobic and the phobic, and they're both dealing with the same thing, but they're different strategies. The phobic is just the one that's scared. You know, doesn't want to go out in the street, doesn't want, you know, wants to wash his hands all the time. It can become that kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. The world's scared, you know, they're like kind of rabbits, you know, always scanning for predators. And there's just a lot of fear base there. The counterphobic is the one who does everything to be a badass and does it goes against the fear, you know, in the extreme things, they have bunkers out in the ponies in North Dakota filled with 50 caliber ammunition and guns and survival because the end is coming and what was us and all this stuff. But I, um, you know, that's, I, I was, I wasn't quite, you know, the bunker type, but I, you know, I've been working out for 35 years. I'm a martial artist. I was a military policeman, uh, a soldier, uh, a wilderness guide, you know, all these kind of like, you know, strong, macho, be ready uh, types. And it wasn't until I started meditating. It was like, you know, I can take care of myself. You know, I know guns. I know martial arts. I know blah, 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 blah. I'm not afraid. And then I started meditating. It's like, holy, you know, Kim Wilber said in that book recently, he had this phrase, numb to numbness. You know, you're so numb, you don't even know you're numb. And 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 I got through that numbness and, and I got into it. And I was like, holy cow, I'm scared of everything. Mm-hmm. I am terrified. I'm scared of living. I'm scared of dying. I'm scared of success. I'm scared of failure. I'm scared of being alone. I'm scared of being in a relationship. Just on and on. Just like, oh, my God, I'm a mess. You know, so all of the all of my strategies and what I was doing started becoming conscious, you know, and uh, I'm still that way. You know, I go into a restaurant, I immediately scan for threats. I want to get a table where I can check out everything and I know where the exits are. And if it comes down to it, I think I can use this breadstick as a weapon, you know? So, you know, that's, and a lot of times I'm not even thinking about it, you know, it's just, oh, here I go again. You know, here's my little unconscious uh, six thing playing out. And, uh, you know, also we we tend to be defenders. You know, that's one of the virtues. We want to defend people. And we're also, we can be very anti-authoritarian or we can really suck up to authority, depending what, what strategy we have. And, and of course it's about becoming um, comfortable with your own inner authority that you stop, you know, always being in opposition <laughs> to anybody in authority because, you know, you re- it's, it's a projection, 
quite. And that that is one of the defense mechanisms, main defense mechanism of six. We project our fear and stuff on other people. So you have to reown that, find your own authority and find out what's good about it. It's called a loyalist. You know, we're very loyal. We're troopers. We can, you know, we can work really hard and endure stuff for, for noble causes and stuff like that. That's why you find sixes are all in the military and, and firemen and policemen. And we're really attracted to these kind of things because uh, we can actually confront fear and we can do something about it. So mm. Mm. Uh, thank you. That's... maybe snuff said about that. And uh, now this is the fun part because basically seven is the point that has John, the most John, fun. John, before we dive into seven, <laughs> yeah, before we, we dive into you, let's take another yeah. whack at me. Yeah. I, I, I've always loved this uh, knowing you just as you were talking. I've known you for five years now and loved you for all this time. And and you're using the term loyalist right now. I experience so deeply your loyalty, uh, your loyalty to our friendship your loyalty to this work, to um, getting the word out, your loyalty to your own integrity. I mean, it so perfectly describes my experience of you, John. I just had to name that. I mean, that is just spot on and about you in that, John. Really deep love for you, you loyalist you. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. I love you too, Bob. Thanks so much, I appreciate that. And moving right along uh, is a seven. Did and I just is, show that I'm a seven? Uh, no, you showed that you're a beautiful, <laughs> sweet man. You show. Um, <clears throat> no, and seven is the um, the epicure, the the hedonist kind of the you know. Mm. It's 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 all about having fun, you know. And there's obviously there's levels to this, and an unhealthy seven will be you know you know the bumblebee flower to flower or the eagle song the new kid in town you know when you're a new kid in town oh you're cool uh, then you know you start experiencing you as a, a messed up human being like the rest of us yeah. uh, oh we need to go over here and do this yeah. Yeah. and one of the so it's all about experience and fun and excitement and the world is so interesting and you know drugs can be a part of that and what it is at the pathological level it's avoidance of depth and the hurt so you stay having a good time so you don't have to deal with the pain. And that's, I'm, I'm sure that's true for all of us on some level, but it, it's really uh, a, a very express in the seven. And, of course, the path through that is to accept the pain and go into the darkness. And when you do that work as a seven and you come out, the other end as a healthy seven. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what a beauty mm-hmm. they are to behold because there is a true love of life mm-hmm. and the world. And they can, and you can, you know, while we're trumping along in our loyalist thing, you can say, Hey, look around you, brother. It is really beautiful. Oh yeah. Thanks. You know, so there's this, this, this connoisseur of the beauty and, and the wondrousness that makes actually doing all the work and the sacrifice to get well, actually worth it because it's a really beautiful story. It's also a dark story, but there's great, insane beauty, amazing beauty, but you have to, you have to take the dark and the light together to become this, this realized being for all of us, but it's particularly, uh, 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 pronounced in the seven in that struggle. So what would you say about that, Dr. Bob? (laughs) I love your introduction. There's three stories I want to tell. I'll be brief with all three of them. They all came out of what you were saying. The first story is in the fall of 1979. I started graduate school. It was a six-year doctoral program. I started off, and of all things, I was going to a Christian seminary to begin my graduate studies in psychology. And uh, my first job was sweeping the floors of the student housing and I may have mentioned this before, it's one of my favorite jobs ever because it gave me time to reflect hours and hours a week doing nothing but sweeping and reflecting. 
And it was during those reflections that I came up with this, is that though I had just begun my studies in a conservative Christian seminary, I, re I remember resolving as I swept the floors that I will no longer believe in anything, including God, outside of my own direct experience. And so I wrote a paper. It was called Trek. I can still remember it as clear as, as a bell. I wrote a paper that fall. I submitted it to my professor, and uh, I was the paper was failed, and and his response was, "I'm praying for you," but I didn't feel it like a supportive. I'm praying for you is like. Holy cow, man, we got to get you back on board. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of a Christian way of saying you're really fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. And I, and I took it that way, and I was really pissed off. Um, but uh, I want to name that, John, because as you were talking about experience, uh, that gives you a, a, a peer into to my own spirituality, is that since then I'm very disinclined to talk about believing uh, anything, unless it's rooted in, in my experience. Now, the truth is, there's a lot that's rooted in my experience. It gives me a lot of compat compatibility with Christianity, uh, particularly more mystical forms of Christianity, yeah. certainly with Buddhism and Hinduism, Sufism, uh, etc. But uh, I've really, that's, that's a lot of years ago. That's, God, that's almost 40 years ago. That's really, I've really maintained that. I just, I'm disinclined to assent to a belief for the sake of saying that I belong. I just, that's not what I do. So that would be the seven in terms of rooted in experience. A little bit later in that same, well, the, the next decade, uh, towards the mid, late uh, 1980s, I went to a conference in Washington, D.C., and the speaker was Jean Shimoda Bolin. She was a, uh, she's a, a union analyst uh, from San Francisco. You may know her. She had written two books, um, one that had gotten a fair bit of, of uh, praise was God's in Every Woman. <clears throat> but the book that she was speaking on at this conference, and I had purchased it and read it before I came to the conference, was God's in Every Man. And what, what Jean Shinoda Boland did in this book was describe the various gods, Zeus, Apollo, Hades, Dionysus. And uh, I read these, and then I went to the conference, and that was another one of these marker uh, markers for me, John, is that and uh, when I read the chapter on Dionysus, it was like, how could she know me down to just word for word description of my psyche? I mean, it was just uncanny. I actually, when I got early in recovery, I repurchased the book. I had long since given it away, read that chapter, and uh, it still resonated. This is like 25 years later. Um, and it's enough to say that Dionysus might well be understood as the archetype or the, or the Greek of god the is yeah. most related to the seven. And so... Yeah. The good news of that is that when I drum, I drum like a Dionysian. You do. And, and uh, when I love, I love like a Dionysian. The shadow side of it is the third story, and this is really what you said earlier, John, is that unfortunately I thought that that was sufficient. And so I, I can date this in the late 80s, early 1990s, very identified with Dionysus. It manifested in my work, in my play, in my relationships. But what I, what I had done, and I even knew this theoretically, John, I learned this from John Wellwood in the early, you know, early 1980s, this idea of spiritual bypassing. I knew better than this. And it wasn't that I was in therapy. I was in therapy and supervision, but there were levels of work that I had not done. Yeah. And my Dionysian slash seven fixation 
led me to uh, bypass those. And those came back in a major way, beginning in the late 1990s into the 2000s, manifesting as uh, uh, increasing addiction, increasing addiction. And ironically, it's not surprising to a seven, addiction is just a perfect hand and glove fit for a seven. <laughs> for, an, for an unhealthy seven, yeah. For an unhealthy seven. Yeah. I still remember, I'll finish with the story for now. I still remember the first time that I took ecstasy, going in to see my therapist that I'd worked with for a number of years, a Jungian analyst, coming in uh, two days later. That was on a Saturday night. I came in on Monday morning for my therapy, and I, I told him, I was always transparent. I said, this is what I did. And I, I said, it was an odd thing, Don, is that when I was at this uh, party, people kept coming up to me and saying, dude, are you as fucked up as I am? And, and I didn't have anything to say that. I was kind of startled by that. And what I told Don, which was true, was that I had never felt more like myself ever than on on, then on E, on ecstasy. So the idea of saying I'm fucked up, it felt like I was fucked in. I mean, I just felt completely myself. And I guess what you'd say is that that would be the apex of like seven identification, just maxing it out there neurochemically through a substance like ecstasy. Notice the name of the substance. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and with that was the shadow side of all that the ecstasy was bypassing. And so my thorn in the flesh, Don, uh, uh, John and Doug, my entire life, my thorn in the flesh of the seven is my bypassing and needing to do the shadow work. Right, right. That's happened of necessity in the last 10 years of recovery. It just hadn't happened adequately. And it will be the rest of my life, and it will be a vulnerability the rest of my yeah, life because yeah. I incline towards uh, ecstasis big time. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because uh, shadow work is like, oh, I'm done with my shadow. No, no, you're not. But uh, and at a certain point in the practice, you start not only dealing with your own shadow, you start dealing with collective shadow and suffering and pain and repression and, and, and all of this stuff. Um, you know, and, and but also the good the, the, the good side of the story is that I think ecstasy or ecstasis is part of our birthright. You know, we just have to learn how to do it in ways that aren't harmful and self-destructive. Right. And, and I've played with you, I think, three times. Yes. <laughs> and he, Bob's a great jazz drummer. Mm. And he, he I mean, I'm a kind of a static guitar player, too, but he draws me into that energy. Mm. You know, we start playing together and we get just high as kites. It's like, are they going to break in the door then bust us? Because we're <laughs> having so much ecstasy. And uh, there's a funny story. We went to a conference, and, uh, an integral conference, and Bob brought some some percussive stuff, and I brought mm. a little amplifier and my electric yeah. guitar, and we yeah. hooked up with this fantastic jazz oh, trumpet. Yeah. Yeah. And we were living like in, in the dorm rooms at this university where the conference was summer. The kids weren't there. The students weren't there. And so people, you know, go and having party and everything. And so we're, we're in there playing, and, and these three women walk in, and beautiful women. One of them's this beautiful Estonian doctor. And Bob goes, uh, John, you want to you want to do heroin? And because the night before we'd done this, uh, this song by Lou Reed called Heroin, which is one of the best inside, you know, experiential things of what it's like to be a heroin act that I've ever done. And I was playing that to another friend of mine in recovery. And I said, is this appropriate to sing this song? And I started weeping. I literally yeah. started sobbing. And he said, oh, yes. You know, oh, yes. So anyway, Bob said, you want to do heroin? I said, Bob, we did heroin last night, you know. And anyway, but it, but it was so good. And... And, and these women go, oh, okay, you know, 
and then, then later on, I tracked at least a doctor down. I knew her. I said, you know, we were talking about a song we'd done the night before. I know that sounded terrible. And she was saying, oh, well, I just know you guys are rock stars. And that's how you, I'm doing, I'm doing her as, as uh, um, the, the former governor of California. But anyway, uh, she didn't talk like that. But yeah, I just figured you guys do that. I said, no, no, no. So anyway, so the yeah. two integral yeah. recovery guys were having fun doing heroin. Anyway. Uh, Bob, so what you said a moment ago about <laughs> feeling more like yourself than you ever had, it, it occurs to me some, you know, light, light bulbs are turning on here and hopefully for our listeners too, that that was a huge part of the appeal of alcohol in particular, but using in general for me is that it was a way to finally shut this thing off Yes. Get out of my and just be for yes. a while. I could finally stop yeah. overthinking everything and just yeah. be. And recently, you guys both know this pretty well, John and Bob, that uh, I have really been exploring flow states and ecstasis and all this kind of stuff too. And that is about the same thing. It's learning how to get into a healthy version of that transient yes. hypofrontality to shut it down and just be. Yes. with the larger self being myself more than I ever have in a different way. It's not this overthinking ego self, but rather getting into the larger self is yeah. the goal of all of these practices, not only the exercise and meditation, but the creative practices, writing and playing music and everything. Yeah. yeah. yeah and your, a, your brilliant mind becomes your servant instead mm -hmm. of your, your slave master, you know, mm -hmm. uh, there, there's just a different relationship to it. And we all bring these the different gifts of, you know, our points into fruition as we continue to work on ourselves and, and kind of the, you know, the, the avoiding the pain, shallow, you know, bumblebee going from flower to flower becomes a, a you know, a person of incredible depth and beauty, you know, it's, it, because it's balanced with, with, with the recognition of the pain and the suffering. And that turns into, of course, into compassion and you can't spiritual bypass. Mm -hmm. And drug addiction and drug use and abuse and so many other kind of addictive things is, is really, it's a spiritual bypass. It's a, you wouldn't do anything but feel the pain and the hurt and the loneliness and the terror and the sorrow. So, um, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. And I want to, I want to get on, try to get, how are we doing on time? Doug? We're, we're about there. So I think <laughs> uh, to okay, so for all you eights out there, and I'll give you a little hint. There's somebody that's in the news a lot who tweets constantly <laughs> who is an eight, okay? And he Let has an affinity to red complexion and kind of anyway, you know what I'm talking about. So we can't do it now. And mm. Uh, mm. however, I think uh, we're going to have to come back to this subject, but our next show, we're going to be uh, interviewing Dr. Adam Gorman, right who is what is a friend, a colleague, mm -hmm. and has been one of the real pioneers yeah. of the, um, of the integral uh, recovery wave or development or uh, evolutionary plan or whatever this thing is uh, that's coming out. So we're really looking forward mm -hmm. to that. So mm -hmm. anyways, again, you guys have been a real uh, yeah. a joy. Yes, uh, yes, Doug. Both yes, happy, Doug. funny, and very deep and moving. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. anyway, we, we love you guys. We love you guys that are mm -hmm. part of the Facebook group and the emails. And just, yeah, let's just do this thing together, shall we? All right. Great. Mm -hmm. God bless. 
and thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.